Hey there, glad you're checking out Supplemental Lecture for Chapter 3. This is our third Supplemental Lecture of the year as we continue our discussion about intrapersonal communication. Now, we'll talk during class about a number of different things, including our internal monologue and chatter. If you're watching this after you've already sat through that class, you know these things already. But today, what we're going to talk about with this Supplemental Lecture self-congruency and concepts surrounding that. We'll also talk about attachment and attachment styles, as well as the way our personality and temperament inform our intrapersonal communication. Quick note for this week, again, we're talking about intrapersonal communication all week long. The first quiz of the semester is in class on February 1st. So if you're listening to this before that quiz takes place, None of this content will actually be on the quiz. The quiz is exclusively over chapters one and two. You can check out the study guide on D2L for this quiz. The quiz is in class at the end of class on February 1st. No out-of-class assignments are due this week, so you have nothing due this coming Sunday. In fact, the next assignments that are due will be coming up next Sunday, so that'd be February 11th. Reflection essay number one will be due as well as the third topic check of the year. We'll also talk about chapters four and five. Now, this is our first reflection essay, the one we'll be doing next week. I'll put the prompt up on D2L, but that'll be under the assignments tab, and you simply just submit your essay under the assignments tab as a Word doc or a Google doc, one of those formats. So, Pretty straightforward, but we'll have a few of those reflection essays throughout the course of the year. So let's dive into the content for today's supplemental lecture, and we begin with self-concept congruency. Now, we'll talk during class about the concepts of self-image, which is how we see ourselves, and self-worth, which is how much we value ourselves, and our ideal self, is, which is where we'd really like to be as a person. So, talking right now about congruence between these three things, what we're really discussing is that interconnection between these three concepts, self-image, self-worth, and the ideal self. And those that have greater self-congruence tend to have a higher likelihood of developing that self-actualization. That's what we talked about last week when we talked about needs and specifically Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Now, for some of us, these might overlap almost completely. We see our self-image and our self-worth in the same place, or roughly the same place, as our ideal self, and we just need to make small tweaks. But there are people for whom, you know, maybe one of these three components, or maybe all three of the components, are slightly out of whack. Each of these selves is really independent of one another, especially for those with incongruent self-concepts. So I'll give you an example of an incongruent self-concept. If your self-image is of someone that is, uh, you know, maybe great, kind, etc., but your self-worth is very low, you don't think you have much to offer to society or anyone else as a whole, then that would be an example of those two things being incongruent. Additionally, if your ideal self is incongruent from your self-image and self-worth, let's just say your self-image is terrible, your self-worth is poor, but your ideal self is this glowing statue of a human on a mountaintop somewhere, that's going to cause some incongruency. Now, the issue with incongruency is 
it most often leads to other psychological difficulties or other psychological difficulties can lead to self-incongruence. And when we are self-incongruent, especially to a large portion, you know, we're all self-incongruent to some small extent, most of us. But when we're self-incongruent to a large extent, that's going to cause some issues. It's going to cause dissonance within our head. And we have to try and find ways to reconcile our self-image, self-worth, and ideal self. So in most cases, our ideal self is the one that is furthest away from self-image and self-worth. We might have a self-image of a person as a you know mediocre person, or maybe you might be saying, like, I'm not good at math, and therefore your self-worth is going to be saying, well, I, I am, my self-worth, my value is low because I'm not very good at math. Ideal self is someone that is very good at math. And so what you do is you go and you attempt to get better at math. Now, what you could also do is change your ideal self and be like, well, I don't want to be good at math. People that are good at math are nerds, etc. And so we can always change one of those three spheres, self-image, self-worth, and ideal self. How we attack that and bring ourselves into congruence, that's up to us in our personal process throughout life. But you can see how if a person is, you know, has an incongruent self-concept that it would negatively affect or potentially negatively affect their interactions with other people. Let's talk now about personality versus temperament. And I just want to briefly touch on this. You know, I've got the definitions up on the screen. So if you're watching this in video format, you can see, but I'll read the definitions to you as well in the podcast format. Temperament is a genetic predisposition causing an individual to behave, react, or think a certain way. So think about this as nature. When we're talking about nature versus nurture, a temperament is a genetic predisposition. So it's something that occurs in us from birth. We are predisposed to act a certain way or conduct ourselves in a certain way. Now, this is a predisposition. So does this mean that if you're born as like a hothead, someone that angers very easily, that you will always be someone that angers very easily? No, it simply means that you have that predisposition towards it. Through self-work and that internal monologue, again, we can maybe be someone that doesn't always anger so, anger so easily in the future. Now, personality is a combination of traits or qualities that make a person unique. So here we're talking about behavior, emotional stability, and mental attributes. This comes a lot more from nurture, and then later on in life, it also comes from our self-work and trying to become more self-congruent, as we talked about just a little bit ago. So again, nature versus nurture here. Temperament has to do with nature, personality, more to do with nurture. And so when we say someone has a good personality, that means that we like their behavior, their emotional stability, their various mental attributes, how they carry themselves throughout society and in our interpersonal interactions with them. So really quick chart here on the screen if you're watching in video format, but I'll read through it on the podcast version as well. So for temperament, once again, that's biologically determined. That is a predisposition. Characteristics can be observed early on in childhood. So as I mentioned, if you're naturally someone that angers very quickly, we're going to see that early on when you're three, four, five years old as a predisposition there. Traits that show up in our temperament are also observed in various different animals. 
Uh, temperament also stands for various stylistic aspects, and it's an integrative function of human behavior. Now, for personality, that's a product of our social environment. So, like I said, that's nurture. But, you know, a lot of people think about nurture as the familial relationship, your relationship you might have with your parents, with your siblings. But ultimately, this is also the types of relationships, uh, comes from the types of relationships that you form early on as a kid, whether that's in daycare, elementary school, any out-of-school activities, and so forth. Your personality is also shaped by experiences later on in development too. So whereas our temperament is really kind of designated at birth, our personality evolves. So talking to someone that's 75 years old, their personality might be a little bit different, might be significantly different than they were when they were 45 or 25. Now, the book says personality is strictly human, so I've got it up on the chart here, but I think anyone who's ever had a pet knows that personality, I don't think, is, is necessarily strictly human. But... The, it, it does have to do with the content aspect of behavior. And it also isn't characteristic of our temperament because as I mentioned, temperament is simply a predisposition to things. So if we find a way to tamp down, let's say our angry side, if we do anger more easily, that's not gonna show up necessarily in our personality later in life. Whereas if we elect to neglect that part of our personality and just say, well, I'm just a person who angers easily, so I'm gonna do that throughout the course of my life, then maybe it does show up in personality, but just because you have a certain temperament does not mean that's going to bleed into your personality. Talking about communication dispositions as well, so this ties back to what we'll talk about in class, but communication dispositions are patterns of communicative behavior. So I just want to put this on your radar because we'll talk about certain things related to communication dispositions later on in class, specifically in the context of uh, the way in which we approach conflict, the way in which we approach friendship, the way in which we approach romantic relationships. All of this we'll talk about later on in the semester. This is more just starting to plant a seed. So communication dispositions have to do with, you know, if someone says they're an introvert or someone says they're an extrovert, those would be examples of communication dispositions. Um, how they approach people, how they approach social situations, uh, avoidance traits as well. The reason we talk about this in intrapersonal communication is this all more or less starts internally. If someone invites you to this large event and you consider yourself an introvert and you think about this large event and you think about all the negative things that could happen if you go to this large event or you think, you know, I'm just going to be a wallflower there. Why would I show up? That's going to lead to some external interpersonal communication traits as well. The other communication dispositions that we'll talk about throughout the course of the semester are argument traits or aggressiveness. We discuss this as we're discussing conflict. Uh, also assertiveness. So how assertive are you? Are you willing to let other people walk over you because you don't want to raise the issue or you'd rather be ignored? Or are you willing to stand your ground? And of course, this is all contextual. Sometimes we stand our ground. Sometimes we let people walk on over us. It just depends on the circumstance. And then how versatile are you? So how versatile are you in terms of not only the intrapersonal communication landscape, so the things you're thinking about and how you regard yourself, but also how versatile are you in the intrapersonal communication or interpersonal, pardon me, communication landscape or in the group communication landscape as well. Those that have a great amount of versatility or communicative flexibility would be considered those that uh, are very, very versatile as far as their communication disposition is concerned. 
Now let's talk about attachment. Now, there's been a lot of talk recently about attachment. You see this in a lot of, uh, you know, kind of pop self-help stuff. You see attachment styles show up in a lot of relationship advice columns, all of those things. So let's talk about attachment really quick. First, let's define attachment so we can talk about it. Attachment is a set of inherent behaviors designed to allow proximity with supportive others. This is basically just a fancy way of saying attachment is more or less how we behave in order to be near others that fuel us, that help us uh, as people. And so once again, this all starts with intrapersonal communication. So we have communication with ourselves about different forms of attachment, about whether we want attachment, whether we want it enough to seek it out and obtain it. As we talked about last week, self-disclosure is awkward. Meeting someone and developing friendships and relationships is awkward. And it can be awkward even to develop an intimate friendship or an intimate romantic relationship. And so it really starts within us how much we want to develop these things, how much we have a need to develop these things. And a lot of it comes back to certain fears that we have. So for those seeking high levels of attachment, for example, there's a theory of rejection sensitivity, which includes, of course, the fear of being rejected. And ultimately, this can come from a number of different places. Maybe there's some repressed hostility or jealousy, or maybe you have to repress these things in order to get the attachment that you're craving. There's this increased need there for relational reassurance. So as we talk about attachment styles, it's not necessarily that high levels of attachment are positive things. They can be covering up other things in life. And as Forrest Hansen talked about in the video about needs last class period or in last week's class period, week two's class period, if you will, sometimes we recognize the need for attachment, but we would rather pick that low-hanging fruit. We put off that attachment or put off developing that attachment, even though we recognize that need, because maybe we have the fear of being rejected. Maybe it's just easier to take that quick dopamine hit and watch that online video or watch that TikTok video, whatever it might be. So as we talk about attachment, let's talk about attachment styles. If you're watching on the video format, you'll see kind of a four quadrant grid here. So I'll do my best to explain it to you in the podcast format. So on the top, we have model of self, and that goes from positive to negative. So this is just basically saying, hey, what's our view of ourself? What's our self? It goes back to that self-value there, the self-worth that we're putting in. Do we think we're worthy of love and support versus not worthy of love and support? And then on the side, from positive to negative, we have models of other. So do we have trust in other people? Are we available to other people? Are we rejecting of other people? Do we not think of other people as worthy enough of our own affection and attachment there? So I'm gonna try and explain this grid a little bit. We start with the upper left-hand side. So secure is when model of self is positive. So we have a high positive self-worth. Uh, and we think highly of others, we trust others, and therefore we are secure in our attachment. We're comfortable with intimacy and autonomy, and therefore we are comfortable seeking out these forms of attachment. 
We think that others are worthy of our love and our praise, just as we think we are worthy of our love and our praise. Now, sometimes people can end up in this quadrant for the wrong reasons. Sometimes these are people that absolutely crave attachment, and therefore they have kind of re renegotiated their internal monologue to think that others are worthy of them, they're worthy of others, etc. But generally speaking, the secure attachment style is seen as kind of the ideal, is, is kind of where a lot of people, especially in relationships, a lot of people where they want to end up, especially in a romantic relationship. Then on the upper right-hand side, we have the preoccupied attachment style. So this is when someone has a negative model of self or negative self-worth, but sees other people as trustworthy, as um, definitely uh, someone, you know, they see other people as uh, those that they want to be attached to ultimately. So they have a good opinion of others and maybe a negative opinion of themselves. And these are people that tend to be preoccupied with relationships. I'm sure you have friends that are out there that can't be single for any length of time. If they go through a breakup, they're right back on the dating apps. Uh, they try their hardest to to you know, be with someone else. They're always in a relationship. I know I have friends like that. There's a friend of mine that's probably gone through, you know, 12, 13 boyfriends, and she's maybe spent a grand total of three weeks in the last three years single. So, you know, going through them very quickly. But these are people that are preoccupied with relationships. They also see their self-worth as being defined by the relationship they're, that they're in in any given time. And so they are uh, very self-aware, but also maybe a little overly self-conscious. They're looking at others and thinking, well, if they see me as single, then I become not worthy to society, not worthy of love, not worthy of support. And so they always have to be in a relationship at a given time. Now, on the bottom left-hand side is the dismissing attachment style. And this is when you have a positive model of self but a negative model of others. So maybe you don't see others as trustworthy. Maybe you don't like to self-disclose to others because you're worried about being hurt. That would be the undercurrent, underlying problem. But ultimately, you dismiss these concerns because your view of yourself is high enough to where you view others maybe as not worthy of disclosing or not worthy of being in a relationship, whether that's a friendship or a romantic relationship with you. So these type of people are often dismissing of intimacy and they're often counter-dependent. What this means is basically they say, oh, I can get it all done myself. I'm all I need. I don't need other people. I can go it alone. All of these things. Now, certain aspects of this that's great. You know, it's good to be somewhat independent. It's good to not see your self-worth as a function of every relationship that you're in at a given time, whether it's a friendship or a romantic relationship. But at the same time, you can see how, you know, it's kind of looking down your nose at other people. Other people aren't worthy, maybe, of me disclosing about myself, or maybe I'm overly suspicious and I don't trust anyone. And so there's that lack of trust that's keeping me from valuing others because I don't think they're trustworthy. So this is the dismissing attachment style. And then we get to the fearful attachment style. Sometimes this is called the avoidant attachment style. And this is where people are fearful of intimacy. And oftentimes this is where people become socially avoidant or withdrawn as well. Now, one would look at this and say, well, maybe introverts fall into this category. This isn't always the case. 
Some introverts certainly are avoidant attachment styles or fearful attachment styles, but that's not always the case. And again, this all starts from within. So what produces an avoidant attachment style? Well, that would be a negative model of self. So seeing one's self-worth as maybe a negative aspect of things, and then also not valuing others or maybe not seeing others as trustworthy enough. And so if you don't value yourself on one hand and you don't value others on the other hand, what motivation is there really to create any relationships at all if the relationships just produce a negative outcome in your mind? So when avoidant attachment style uh, type people get into social situations or maybe on dates, they have issues with others that are perhaps emotionally available and then they tend to withdraw and pull back, which can in turn cause maybe some increased longing for attachment, but then conscious dismissal of that attachment because it's something that you see is maybe not valuable if you're in this attachment style. So once again, to go through them, you have the secure attachment style, the preoccupied attachment style, where you have a negative view of yourself, positive view of others, dismissing attachment style, where you have a positive view of yourself and a negative view of others, and a fearful attachment style, which is both negative there. That'll do it for this supplemental lecture. And I, I honestly could talk in further detail about these attachment styles, but I just gave you a 10,000 foot overview. There are a lot of other dynamics that come into play. And of course, as we always say in this class, context and environment matter perhaps the most. So contextually, maybe our attachment style can certainly change, just like any aspect of our personality can change in a different context. Let's talk about what's coming up once more just to leave you off this week. Again, this week we're talking about intrapersonal communication, chapter three. Quiz number one is in class on February 1st. Uh, that will be 40 points, and it'll be over chapters one and two. The study guide for that is on D2L. There are no out-of-class assignments due this week, so the week ending February 4th. There are two out-of-class assignments that will be coming up next week as we talk about verbal and nonverbal communication. We'll have our first reflection essay of the semester and topic check number three, which will go over both chapter three and chapters four and five. Those are both due February 11th. So just kind of have that on your radar, have that on your calendar. I know it's not for a little while after this video launches or this podcast launches, but still just something to be cognizant of. All right. Thank you so much for joining me through this journey of intrapersonal communication. And we'll be right back at you next week with our fourth supplemental lecture of the semester.